0: welcome everybody to another episode of need some introduction in today's episode i will be reviewing the batman the new dc comics movie directed by and written by matt reeves with robert pattinson as our new batman a younger batman than we've seen in the past and after that review i also get into my thoughts on how dc is managing their properties their franchise and such a discombobulated mess compared to the very clear succinct way that marvel has managed their brands and yet Maybe this is the pull of comic books being the mythology of our times. People are seeing these films whether they make sense holistically or not. So maybe this is part of their genius or maybe they just know, they're smart enough to know that it doesn't really matter. They can just pretty much put out anything. I'll get into that in much more detail at the end of this episode. But at the top of the episode, I just wrapped up the Pam and Tommy series. And Sona and I did have a discussion when we had seen the first three episodes. So definitely check out that recap episode of ours. In this same feed honestly it probably covers most of the interesting topics here but i did want to circle back and give my general opinion as to whether i thought this show developed any of those ideas more fully over the course of its run and whether it's worth watching or not so a quick catch up on pam and tommy at the top of this episode followed by the batman review the the batman review as usual make sure you subscribe to us on whatever podcatcher you prefer so that you know when these episodes become available. Drop us a review, especially if you listen to us on Podcast Addict or Overcast. We don't have any reviews on those apps. Give us any feedback you may have. Need some introduction at gmail.com. Currently, we are watching. Sona and I together have been going episode by episode, going through the new Apple Plus Severance TV show. Very interesting show. Definitely catch up on that if you haven't already. If you don't currently subscribe for Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus, Target is actually giving it away for four months search for Apple TV Plus Target Deal or something similar, and you'll find that coupon, which you can activate right on your phone and have Apple TV Plus for free for four months. And you get to catch up on this show, which really is a fascinating show. In the future, we'll be covering, if you're a comic book fan and you're here for the Batman review, we will be covering Moon Knight from Marvel on Disney Plus starting at the end of this month. So tune in for those and check our feed for any other episodes you may be interested in. I have some reviews of The most recent spider-man movie as well as just a catch up on a lot of different marvel content that's out there i did just review peacemaker recently on its upon its finale a couple weeks ago and that's in the same feed as well so i hope you find something you like to listen to recommend this to a friend of course that's the easiest way to support us and help us grow our audience will you please state your name for the record please welcome pamela anderson know anything at all about Mr. Lee before you met him? I knew he was the drummer for Motley Cruz. Did you find him attractive? I like to smile. I still do. We're so good together, Pamela. To everlasting love! We have recently come into possession of a piece of material. like we're seeing something we're not supposed to be seeing. Nobody's ever getting rich off a of celebrity sex tape. What if we sold it someplace nobody could find us? A website. A what site? It's this thing on the computer. People will order the tape directly from us. Wow, you are so hot. What the hell is this? I won't do that. How many copies of this are out there? Could doesn't. High rated copies are sprouting up all over the web. You don't seem to understand what a big deal this is. I'm on that tape just the same as you. But this is worse for me. How is this worse for you? Everyone wants to beautiful and perfect. Is that how you feel? Like you have to please people? It's all I do. So, with that out of the way, I did want to cycle back to the Pam and Tommy. Hulu series about the sex tape, the beginning of this moment in cultural history in which there was kind of a nexus of this incredibly famous couple, Pamela Anderson, famous mostly for her body and showing it on Baywatch. Tommy Lee having been one of the biggest rock stars of his generation, although fading at that moment in the mid-90s. And then, of course, this sudden availability of this tape stolen from their homes, and eventually leaked onto the Internet. So not only did the Internet allow them to distribute this moment in time where the Internet suddenly exists so you can anonymously distribute physical copies of this material, but of course, it was very easy at the time for people to simply copy this on their VHS. They all had VHS players at home. People were very familiar with copying tapes. They actually had VHS machines designed exclusively to allow you to copy your friend's tapes or to copy something that someone maybe copied from cable. So everybody was savvy enough to do this anyway. So the idea that somehow shipping this out would not lead to viral physical spread of the material was very naive from the villain slash (laughs) um, co-victim of this whole entire thing, played by Seth Rogen, who's one of the producers on the show as well. But more than that, this moment of the Internet itself. The Internet becomes a distribution arm vastly more efficient than any kind of physical distribution. What happens here to Pam and Tommy happened to music and movie bootlegging and pornography itself. The value of pornographic films became incredibly cheap once people were just watching snippets of pornography on the internet. So it's this interesting moment in time, the birth of digital distribution on the internet and also the beginning of this very toxic fascination with celebrity hood that always existed, but there was some level of, or at least this show would have us believe that there was always some level of propriety of some manners, for lack of a better word, from the public and from the celebrity media, that this was a threshold that would not be crossed. But the ability for this material to get onto the internet so easily, so readily, really broke down this barrier that people probably may have informally felt there was between this private and public life. And of course we live in a world now and we explore this sona and I in our conversation where the Kardashian empire to a large extent large extent was created by a sex tape and how that became a literal gateway for fame. So all of this is very strange and very interesting although it's not fully explored in this series it is context for the series so it does allow you to think about some of these ideas which are culturally interesting but I would say that most of what you get out of this is probably in those first three episodes which also simultaneously are maybe the worst episodes of the show itself Craig Gillespie directing those first three episodes there's a very over-the-top very stylish representation cartoonish especially in the representation of the sex acts themselves in the nudity of the actors and this cartoonishness really dissipates over the course of the series for the betterment of feeling something for these characters i would say and i want to call out specifically lake bell the actress who directs maybe two of my favorite episodes here in the show and whether it's her direction or the script itself in those particular episodes episode 4 in episode 7 i really thought there was a real tenderness towards pam's character which grounds the material and probably it's the best version of this material I would say but overall I don't think that they explore these themes enough to fully take advantage of what they have here I think this is a very interesting moment in history like I mentioned before and I don't think it gets fully explored but I do still think it's worth watching I think if this topic sounds interesting to you if you're familiar with the tape and you are always curious about the behind the scenes I do think this is a very easy watch it's a very bingeable show some of the later episodes are very short, only 30 minutes, so it's pretty easy to get through once you get through those longer first three episodes. And honestly, from my my own research of the topic, this is based on a Rolling Stone article that came out maybe 10 years after the events. What we see here in the show is actually pretty factual. They've probably made Rand a little more sympathetic. Just one detail I'll throw in here if you've seen the show is that when he eventually becomes an enforcer for the mob to make up this shortfall, he gets screwed over in and of himself he gets screwed over by this whole situation and when he does become an enforcer for the mob one of his techniques was to throw acid on people so this is something that is not in the show and of course will probably make him much less sympathetic it was his career for a very brief period of time and it is amazing by the way how in the end what a sucker he turns out to be where he puts this out there he's trying to make up this shortfall of just a few thousand dollars he's not able to even get that back if you haven't watched it, seen the show, you can probably skip the next minute or two, because this is something that I do find most interesting here in the latter stages of the show, but skip ahead about two minutes, but I do find it very interesting that Rand ends up getting screwed over by his partner. And I just think about the money here where they post his tape, his tape, not his tape, they, they, they post the tape on the internet, which he has stolen. He's trying to make up a shortfall of just a few thousand dollars. Tommy screws him out of that. And therefore he goes and steals the safe just so he can get some reimbursement. Now, potentially when you pawn something, it's not worth that much. So he pawns some of the materials that are in there, probably gets some of his money back, but not all of it. Then he tries to sell this tape and then he may very well make back that money very quickly when you think that probably thousands of people order this thing online, but his friend screws him out of that money. So he doesn't see any of that. And then he has to pay back the $50,000 that was originally fronted to them by the mob to distribute. So now he has to make that money back. So he's still underwater with that. And then he eventually sells the tape to someone who's basically taken a copy of the tape, posted it on the internet, giving it away for free, just to drive traffic to his website. Then this guy really should have a show all his own. He's a, (laughs) he's a business genius, goes to Pam and Tommy gives them a cut of the royalties. They make millions of dollars off of this tape in royalties. And meanwhile, he makes tens of millions of dollars more by selling the rights to the tape, a tape that he does not, was not the rightful owner to. And of course, the person who stole it and put it onto the market in the first place gets tens of thousands of dollars, which makes him whole to a large extent, but still he gets the least out of this whole thing. So they don't go into this in much detail, but I will touch on it here as well. And this is not a spoiler, by the way, this is just history. Pam and Tommy did break up eventually, and maybe they sugarcoat their romance a little bit here, although they, even ten more than 10 years later, still claim to be their love of their lives, of each other's lives. But shortly after the end of the events in this show, Tommy did get arrested for assaulting her in their home. He pleaded no contest, had to go to jail for a period of time. He also has been accused of being abusive to other girlfriends that came later. So he's probably not that great a guy, but that's not to say that he didn't love Pam nonetheless. Rand, as they do detail here at the very end, is now a marijuana grower in California. And Pam, they really don't talk about the rest of her life, but at the end of the film, she did, She lost the L.A. Confidential role, which went to Kim Basinger, which got her an Academy Award nomination, and maybe would have been a transformative moment, moment for Pam. Was it the tape that lost her the role, or was it her pregnancy? Either way, it is problematic to think that Obviously, if you're a sex symbol and you're pregnant, it's probably more of a thing against you than having a sex tape out there, unfortunately, especially in this day and age, where sex sex tapes are pretty commonplace. She also loses out the Elizabeth Hurley role of Austin Powers, in Austin Powers, which potentially could have been a breakthrough for her as well. But once again, nothing against Pam Anderson. She's been a savvy businesswoman most of her life, but it's not to say she would have gotten any of those roles necessarily. Elizabeth Hurley was pretty great in Austin Powers. But it was not the end of Pamela Pamela Anderson's career. And that's something they do not detail here, but I do want to make clear that she had a pretty successful run after this. She had a series that she was a producer on called VIP, which I'm sure made her a significant amount of money. It was syndicated all over the world. And I believe she did another season of Baywatch as well, where she probably negotiated a pretty healthy contract there. So not the end of the world for any of these characters. And oh, and Tommy Lee had a pretty successful solo career, and Motley Crue has never had the success they've had back in their heyday, where they were one of the biggest bands in the world. So that they had passed, but they continued to put out music, and they still continue to put out music. As a matter of fact, they've had a bit of a renaissance in the past couple of years, uh, primarily because of the Netflix adaptation of The Dirt. And they've toured and they're great. I put out another Greatest Hits package just based on the back of that. So, overall, I would recommend this if you're at all interested in this topic, uh, especially in the first half of the season. I mean, honestly, you could probably just watch through episode four and you've pretty much got everything you need to know. I mean, everything that happens after that is beat for beat true to the story, but that's it. It's very journalistic and it really becomes kind of what you expect in a biopic where a couple's going through a rough time and breaking up. You can almost predict the scenes you're going to see, even though they probably all did actually happen. So easy to binge, easy to watch, definitely entertaining, and they could have probably been more, but still, for what it is, not bad. Something- So, the Batman, directed by Matt Reeves, who's had quite an interesting career. After starting with the David Schwimmer comedy The Pallbearer, if you can call it a comedy, he eventually hooked up with J.J. Abrams, directed some of Felicity, and then hit the big time by making Cloverfield. Now, I'm not that impressed with his direction in Cloverfield, although the movie has its merits. I'm not as big a fan of that film as many people are, but it did make money. And then he made a very interesting and, I think, underseen. Horror movie called Let Me In, which is a U.S. adaptation of the modern classic Let the Right One In, the Scandinavian horror uh, vampire movie. And I honestly think this U.S. adaptation is almost as good, and a lot of it has to do with Reeve's really interesting visual style. And he brought that to bear with the sequel, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and followed that up with War for the Planet of the Apes, two massively successful films especially Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And then the Batman was actually supposed to come back, uh, supposed to come out, I believe, in 2019. And then they got back, uh, pushed out for non-COVID-related reasons and then pushed out even further for COVID-related reasons. And now here we are, 2022. And I will just start off by saying that I do recommend the film, but with a bunch of caveats. I do think that Batman fans are going to like this film. It's interesting how... The film begins almost like it is a mashup, intentionally, of all the previous Batman movies. To start with, the film begins, it feels like it is set in the 80s. You see these yellow cabs, and there's no indication of modern technology. Rain is pouring down, and like the opening seg- uh, segments of this film are like really... Maybe completely overdone, but really stylish. And then little by little, as this mystery starts to evolve, and there's a murder mystery, a multiple murder mystery here, we see this 80s-ish, you know, maybe referencing back to the Tim Burton Batman movies, and set in this 80s with a very high Gothic style, oftentimes some of these interiors within the Wayne Manor. But then I'm trying to place this in time and I'm thinking, oh, wait a second. That looks like modern technology. At one point, there's a clue that is on a USB. So I'm like, okay, USB. And they're sending email. Okay, well, now we're in the 90s, minimally. Okay, that's a laptop. And then more than halfway, around halfway, I'd say, into the movie, we suddenly are using cell phones. So it's as if we have moved through from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s to the present day over the course of the film. And another pastiche here, and it's obvious reference point here, especially at the beginning of this film, is to David Fincher's Seven. We see this serial killer with a plan. And these sequences, this is definitely not a, a movie for kids, I'll tell you. These sequences where we see this masked murderer, the Riddler, channel straight up horror. And as far as paralleling what's happening on the villainous side to what's happening with Batman, Batman's arrival in the film is out of a straight straight out of a horror movie as well. So this feels in many ways like the first and second Nolan Batman movies. Batman Begins and the Dark Knight. Mashed up with Seven. We have murder victims being dismembered, leaving clues behind for the Batman to have to solve. Very similar to the police characters in Seven trying to discover John Doe's plot. And not that dissimilar, by the way, from this anarchistic Joker, the Heath Ledger Joker from the Dark um, from the Dark Knight. So there's elements of all these things and more. Uh, there's a bunch of Easter eggs from the comics themselves. This is a, primarily a film noir, a murder mystery, but also a mobster movie. And the origin of the Batman character is in Detective Comics. He began as a detective before he had officially spun off as a pure Batman, as the Batman character. And these mobster subplots have been in the comic book from the very beginning. So there's elements of that origin and from the previous Batman movies and from David Fincher thrillers, most notably Seven, like I mentioned. And in many ways, the plot and a lot of these developments are pastiche and not necessarily that satisfying on their own. So it's awkward and kind of over the top and overly grim and overly long as this film really is throughout i still question mark enjoyed it maybe (laughs) it's hard to say you enjoy a film like this because it is so relentlessly grim but i did i have to say i did and i'll tell you why first of all reeves style matt reeves style here is incredible the film is so overly designed and overly stylized it almost goes over the top But the commitment to what they're representing here is so great. And there's so much detail, so many little details that they get so perfectly that I really found it just incredible to just submerge, submerge yourself in this world. Everybody does a great job with their performances. I really liked Zoe Kravitz here. Just saw her in Kimmy on HBO Max, and we have a review for that in our feed if you want to look that up. But I did like her here. did like her there, I should say, in the Kimi movie, and liked her here even more. I liked her physicality. I liked her vulnerability. I think she did a great job playing this character, which has some surprises and some multifacets that she has to pull off. And I do feel that sometimes she kind of has a certain shtick that she leans into, and she avoids it pretty much until maybe only the last couple of scenes. As for Pattinson, this is a ding against the way they use him, not necessarily him as a performer. I'm a big fan of him. Post-Twilight, I think he's had a really interesting career, and he's a really interesting actor. Definitely track down Good Times if you haven't. This is such a great movie, such a great performance by him. And I believe it's still available on Netflix. That was the Safdie brothers movie that came out maybe just a year before Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler, which is also an excellent movie. But I do prefer Good Times. Good Times. Good Time. But although he really has to play just one note, he literally does not smile a single time in this movie. And I do wish that Reeves had come up with a way to flesh uh, or round out his character a little more. He's just this open wound and still dealing with this trauma from his childhood. But all that being said, he is magnetic on screen in the Batman persona and just a great physical presence. His fight scenes are great. He really is just violent and angry and you get a feeling that he's in it to beat these guys up. So that physicality is really impressive and he gives a really great physical performance there i just do wish that they would let some of his natural charisma shine through i think about tenet a movie i did not love but after seeing that movie i was like pattinson has had to have immediately jumped to my number one spot to be the next james bond he was so utterly effortlessly charming in that movie in tenet that i think it's a real missed opportunity to not let some of that charisma shine through here another nitpick is this narration this batman narration this is very emo and and i do know that it is a reference uh, most likely to some of these most noirish batman comics for example batman year one is probably a direct reference point here but man this narration drones on and on and it really doesn't need it the film is so beautifully designed you really don't need to say much to understand the backstory to the character so having this internal monologue is excruciating i can only imagine poor alfred must have to hear this all the time i feel i feel bad for him no no wonder he lets the phone ring 20 times he's probably thinking i know it's bruce calling again and he's just gonna monologue for 25 minutes i can't take it (laughs) but it just seems that once the narration has basically said everything that is subtext in the plot and then it starts telling us what we're seeing on the screen at that very moment and then it's still droning on. I'm like, holy cow. Like, okay, we get it. <laughs> you, you, you need an editor, dude. You need an editor. I also think that the shape of the cowl and his face and his eyes is maybe a little too pretty with the cowl on, which is kind of uh, an interesting look and also too recognizable. Like, I can't imagine anyone who knew Bruce Wayne, knew him up close, wouldn't be in the room with the Batman and not know immediately that uh, it's him. But other really good performers, we have Colin Farrell, completely unrecognizable as the Penguin. The Riddler, I'm not a huge fan of this performance of the Riddler, Once he's, especially once he's unmasked. I think that everyone's given away who this actor is. I am not going to give it away here because it's not revealed until very late in the movie, so I am not going to reveal who that is. But I did think the performance works the less you know about him when he is performing uh, you know eventually there's videos like protracted videos where he's speaking a lot the more you see him even in the mask the less interesting he becomes but he is really a truly horrific figure early on and that's less the performance and more of the styling of the film but still it is mostly effective john tertura gives an interesting performance here playing evil we're just watching this very sweet performance he's giving in severance our current week to week watch in the main episodes. And here he is playing a really malevolent character, very different register for him and, and giving a really good performance. But the thing that drives me through the film the most, maybe the two things, one is that this is a true noir with a mystery at its heart. Chinatown, for example, is something that Matt Reeves calls it as a reference point for this film. But this deep citywide corruption that's being unraveled one clue at a time like some of these older film noir mysteries, I'm a sucker for this. I mean, I even like the mysteries in the screen movies. I think that's why I've liked that series so much. And I think as a screenwriter, <laughs> my note to everybody out there who who wants to write is put a mystery in there. Just put a mystery. It could be a character mystery. It could be a legitimate mystery. You could do this in a comedy. Put some uh, mystery in the plot and it will drive you through, drive your viewers through these stories. This film would have felt much more tedious if it wasn't for that mystery that even when some of the thematic beats are a little too much what like we've seen in previous Batman movies, I think the mystery kept me compelled just as a general rule of thumb. Put a mystery in the plot. I think that is a great way to keep the audience engaged. And, and it worked for me. We have Jeffrey Wright, always great, here playing Commissioner Gordon. I guess he's not Commissioner yet. Lieutenant Gordon at this point. Andy Serkis does a very good job as Alfred. A bigger role than he usually gets to play. But the main reason, beyond that murder mystery that keeps you going, the main reason to see this is this incredible and beautifully, darkly beautiful design work in the film. And it's just so detail-oriented and so well thought out. So, for example, just some call-outs. We see Bruce Wayne in a Stingray. I believe it's a Stingray. So a classic muscle car. When we see the Batmobile, and what a moment that is, I literally got slightly aroused <laughs> seeing this version of the Batmobile. And what I loved about it is that it is basically a muscle car that has been reconstituted into this Batmobile. And he does the same thing with the Bat Cycle, or whatever you call that, and his other contraptions. So it is not the super high tech version of batman that we've seen in the christopher nolan movies for example where he has infinite money and he's having these vehicles manufactured overseas and these he's like basically a tank instead it is a rich guy with the commodity he has the most of his probably tons of time and he has built himself this batmobile he's built himself these vehicles and i love this blend of high tech and low tech this handcrafted feel to the technology it's not anyone just explaining this it simply is just in the material another example of this is his uniform himself you feel you can see the seams in the leather of his mask and you can imagine him putting this over stitching this over body armor and it's really beat up you can see where he's probably taken bullets before and I love the look of this and I love that once again this is just something that is there to see without anyone commenting on it or without us having him uh, uh, all this backstory for it. It simply is baked into the design of the film and also the way that the film is shot. There's this, you see it in the trailer, there's this incredible car pileup where the Batmobile like emerges, erupts from a giant flaming explosion. And the whole thing is shot not like a Michael Bay action scene, all the CGI would be slow motion flames and basically putting the camera in a place where no one could possibly be to see it. Instead, whether this is CGI or practical or a combination of both, it's as if the cameras, and and once again, these are probably CGI shots, probably computer generated shots, but it feels in the shot selection as if the camera is mounted to the side of the Batmobile. As if, once again, you can see it in the trailer, when you see the Batmobile flying through that explosion, we're seeing it in a reflection somebody looking in a rearview mirror so everything is kind of seen from a perspective of one of the characters inside the film and all of this makes it just feel very earthy and and weighty and and it's really just great work And and i'd say that that is the main reason to see this film is to see how well thought out all of these design decisions are another really fascinating thing that happened here is the way this is shot just something i found out during my research but this was shot using the volume, which is by, if people are not familiar with this, it's the technique that's being used to shoot the Mandalorian and has also been used by John Favreau previously to shoot like the Jungle Book, for example. And what it is, is a space surrounded by high-definition screens in which on the screens is projected the background the special effects. So for example, in the Mandalorian, you may have never thought about this, but the armor, it's very tricky to shoot the armor because it can reflect from every direction. So to do that with special effects would be very difficult, but also doesn't look that good when you're shooting something that's reflective. And obviously if someone's standing there with a camera and you have no set, you know, you only have set on one side and then no set on the other side. Then of course, in the armor, you would see the camera, you'd see the people standing there, it makes shooting the Mandalorian very tricky. So they came up with this technique had existed before but never to this extent where they have the entire virtual world those desert planets for example are projected onto these extremely high resolution screens which are circular they surround the the cast so it is a virtual set they can change the set to be whatever they want it could be sunrise it could be sunset it could they could be inside of a house inside of a giant mansion they could be inside of a cave they can be on a desert planet so whatever they need the background to look like. And then the actors are within it. So this is really fascinating because it not only becomes a huge facilitator for having naturalistic lighting, which is the main goal, but I would imagine as an uh, as a performer that instead of being on a green screen with a green dot to stare at, actually being like in your Iron Man or your Batman uniform or whatever you happen to be shooting at the time and being immersed in This set that is eventually going to be composited over the film, but being immersed in it, being able to see it as you're performing has got to be a huge improvement. Yeah, but it must significantly improve your performance. And they use it here. Matt Reeves speaks about, in some of his interviews, about how the sets were actually very small. But they use this volume to, for example, have him on top of a skyscraper during sunrise or during sunset. And you get the lighting. And, of course, you get this huge space that you're rendering. But, of course, it's just a small area. So you don't need to build a giant set to have this giant backdrop because the backdrop is just this high-definition screen. And it's going to change the way these films are made, especially when you have people like Favreau and uh, Reeves who really understand the possibility of shooting this way. So it's very exciting, once again, to see this being used In a really savvy way. So that's my review. Definitely enjoyed the film. It's way too long. Three hours long. It's crazy that this film is as long as it is. I literally checked my clock. My watch. At the half hour mark. I love the first half hour of the movie by the way. But at the half hour mark I felt like. Okay we have some pretty low stakes. Very personal stakes. Defined at the half hour mark. And I was thinking to myself. hmm, This feels like the first act. I think we have set up the stakes here sufficiently. And I'm thinking, this movie feels like it should be an hour and a half tops, maybe less than an hour and a half at that point. And then I got to the one hour mark and I was like, oh, well, this feels like, well, it's time to start the wrap up, you know, uh, maybe an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes tops. And then at the one and a half hour mark, I'm like, wow, there's another hour and a half left of this. I mean, the movie's three hours long. So I'm like, there's an hour and a half left. How are this thing gonna last for another hour and a half? And to that point, we're at the two-hour mark, and I say, I check my, clock, my watch again, and at the two-hour mark, I'm saying, okay, so this is pretty much we're at the end of the movie, right? We just got to wrap things up. And it's like, no, there's still almost a whole hour to go. And I'm like, really? Wow. So to that point, as you would imagine from that description, the stakes literally are increasing from very, very personal at that half-hour mark to more and more and more high stakes until you get to these kind of giant city-wide stakes by the end so we've seen all this before as far as these themes with batman but it is interesting once again just somewhat similarly to what we saw And, and i think more effectively than what nolan shows with the joker rising up as a counterpoint to batman that's obviously a theme there and a theme in the comics for a very long time But I do think it's a little more elegantly handled here. There is, for example, in the very beginning of the film, we are seeing someone being stalked through binoculars and we are in the point of view of the serial killer. And later, we have an identical shot in which Batman is the one spying on somebody. So it directly correlates these two characters. And then, of course, it overtly becomes the case that the Riddler, the villain here, basically confronts Batman to say, We're the same. We're on the same side. You're working for me, or I'm working with you, whichever way you want to perceive it, which is shocking to Bruce. They really do thematically cover the same thing that Nolan's two first Batman movies, which were both long movies in and of themselves. You know, at that point, you add those two movies together, you're over five hours. And this film could have actually been five hours. It's long at three hours, but you could easily see this script being, you know, you can give more backstory to Gordon. You can have a flashback episode to some of these orphans. Uh, I won't explain those details of that, but you'll know when you see the movie, you can imagine fleshing that out somewhat. You can imagine having more of Selena Kyle's back story. And, of course, having parallel storylines, what's happening with the gangsters while Batman is doing his investigation. And by fleshing out all those characters, you could easily see this be like a 5, 8, 10 episode series. So that's how much is crammed into this three hours. So I understand why it's so long, but at the same time, why not put some of this stuff into a second movie? But all that being said, I do want to see a second movie. I do want to see them allow Pattinson to smile a little bit, (laughs) you know, relax a little bit, enjoy being Batman a little bit. And I do hope that that happens. And this movie is going to make a lot of money. So I'm sure we'll see another. Now I'm going to be snarky and I'm going to tell you all the things I didn't like about it. There are some minor spoilers in this, so if you don't want to hear this, you can jump ahead about five minutes. The killer left this for the Batman. Why is he writing to you? You came. Okay? I've been trying to reach you. Riddler's latest. It's all about the Waynes. If we don't stand up, no one will. You got a lot of cats. I have a thing about strange. <laughs> the bat and the cat. That nice ring. A new friend of yours? I'm not so sure. I'm just here to unmask the truth about this cesspool we call a city. You're part of this too. He's up. Stay still. How am I part of this? Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. But first of all, how do you get knocked out multiple times inside the bat suit? Like. You cannot get knocked unconscious when you're in the Suit. Someone's just gonna peel that off. I mean, it's amazing that people don't just peel the mask off. I know this happens in other Batman movies also. I know, I know. It's not just this one, but still, it's like, dude, like, come on, <laughs> do not get knocked out when you can prevent it. Don't stand so close to those explosives. Once again, now this is potentially spoiling the finale. So once again, skip ahead if you're still here and you haven't seen the movie, I'll keep it as vague as possible. But the explosions, the trucks exploding, how can you park those trucks there if, I lived in basically a a condition of where I am in New Orleans, where the water's about to breach the levee every day of the week. There better be no chance of any vehicles getting anywhere near those levees. Not a chance. That stuff has got to be kept clear at all times. So I call BS Maloney, on even allowing that to happen. Still in spoilers, by the way. Absolutely hilarious (laughs) when the Riddler is now arrested and is saying, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne. It's such a hilarious thing. I was laughing out loud unintentionally. I'm sure this is not intended to be as funny as I found it to be. (laughs) This is handled so poorly the way that they have this, supposed to be this reversal that he's revealing that he knows that he's Bruce Wayne. Oh, no, no, no. I meant that Bruce Wayne got away. Bruce Wayne. Oh my God. Another thing that was utterly hilarious to me was, the skydiving off the tower once again not intended to be hilarious but just very funny the way it was shot so two things that were unintentionally hilarious the only humor (laughs) in the entire film unintentional and another uh point i'd make here in still the spoilers here the end which i won't reveal the final plot twist here but it's a little too grim maybe i mean this was probably being shot before some of the more recent events like the Capitol riots for example occurred so This is probably not, it just feels like it is capitalizing on that. No pun intended. Although it probably was not. It's probably a coincidence. But it did just feel kind of extra ugly, given some of the circumstances recently. And lastly, another Joker? For real? Are we going to have another Joker? Uh, I hope not. I hope there's no more Jokers. All these years, you lied to me, Alfred. We'll have our scars, Bruce. He's still away. He's involved in this? Oh, he's not involved. How do you know? Separate Gelani! Who are you under there? What are you hiding? Selena, don't throw your life away. Don't worry, honey. I got nine of them. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is what is up with DC? This is bonkers. So DC, behind the curve, they saw what Marvel's doing. Marvel's creating this complete unified 20-something movie, and now. TV series and animated things and the, and the Spider-Man spinoffs, uh, or, you know, side storylines, not spinoffs. So they're doing the, so, they're working with the Sony characters. Uh, they were integrating, they're, they're trying to fold in now the Fantastic Four and the X-Men as well in the future. So this massive, sprawling universe of characters, you have witches, you have magic, you have space aliens, you have Eternals like spiritual entities and some of this stuff doesn't work great but it is one whole vision and honestly the payoff with that end game i thought was you know nearly a complete success from marvel's point of view meanwhile dc's trying to figure it out they try to rather than introducing characters and slowly build up to an avengers like event they're like we're gonna have one superman movie and then we're gonna have another movie where we Throw Batman in there and Wonder Woman in there. And we have a video of Aquaman and Cyborg too. He's on a, on a flash drive somewhere and the Flash is in there. So just shoehorn as many characters as they can because we got to get to Justice League ASAP. Like we got we to gotta jump to, you know, Endgame after movie three. And so just a total and utter train wreck of trying to take these really iconic characters and Build a Marvel universe, not patiently and slowly, but just do it all in two or three movies. And the result was the first Justice League movie, the original—not the original, I guess—but the Frankenstein version that came out, where began begun by Zack Snyder and then finished by Joss Whedon, who had made the hugely successful Avengers film, the first one and the second one actually, but maybe the worst of them all. And I have tried. I have tried to watch this reformulated justice league miniseries on hbo max and i just simply could not do it i couldn't do it and maybe it's better i you know i can't judge that but more importantly is really at that point with the utter failure of that justice league film well over 300 million dollars including advertising I think they spent 600 million dollars on that thing and it, it will never it'll never break even <laughs> and they spent even more by the way re, you know bringing the the snyder Cut to hbo max and it's questionable whether That was worth it because its ratings were good, but no better than some of these other straight HBO Max movies that came out last year that cost not a fraction of what that. All right. So that's my whole Justice League digression. I apologize for that. It was way too long. But I did want to get to the fact that they failed miserably with that. And then what's their next move? They don't know what to do. They're like lost. But then the Wonder Woman movie comes out very much in the wheelhouse, you know, really much folding into that original concept of this marvel-like franchise world and it's a massive success not so much the second one which i mean it's questionable how that would have performed minus the pandemic and but there's still a third one to come so i guess we'll reserve judgment for the success not the artistic success of that film because i know many people don't like it the second one that is but the first one is an unqualified success so then they follow it up with aquaman and they give this one to james wan and james wan puts like every single thing he ever wanted to see in a comic book movie all in one movie. And it is utterly bonkers, utterly banana. I mean, you have underwater laser beams, you have explosions underwater, you have sharks with friggin' lasers on their heads, practically. And it is a massive success. Makes well over a billion dollars worldwide. It's just a total phenomena. So they go bonkers with that. And people loved it. People loved this zany over-the-top cartoonishness which does not at all merge with this extremely dark nihilistic Zack Snyder vision of the original characters but it doesn't matter it's working so whatever they're doing somehow their own parallel version of franchise maintenance it's working and then the craziest thing of all they make the Joker or Joker I should say so Joker gets no the in front of it, and Batman gets a the. So the the that, that was in front of the Joker got moved to the Batman. We remove it from Joker. But Todd Phillips, he of the Hangover movie franchise, goes and makes Joker. I am not a fan of Joker, and I honestly am shocked at the phenomenal success of this thing, given the fact that I don't find it entertaining, and I don't even understand the point of it. I am normally a huge fan of joaquin phoenix probably my favorite actor working today and there are moments in the movie that are great this is joker now we're talking about his performance great and the film itself in moments really truly great but so much of the film does not work at all but that's not why i'm bringing it up here i'm bringing it up in the context of dc's bananas how many different jokers do they now have Right, they have four different Jokers. Maybe a fifth one with this movie we're talking about today, the Batman. And it doesn't matter. The Joker never played China. A movie like that would never play in China. China has kind of like their own haze code where you have to have only positive movies and nothing as grim and ugly as Joker would play there. But that's not why I bring it up. I bring it up because I am just shocked. Not that the film was released. I'm totally fine with people releasing that film, and I'm totally fine with. The quality of the film, it has, like I mentioned, some scenes are great. I don't think it works overall, but I think some scenes are really, really good. So I can understand why some people thought it was kind of the artistic artistic achievement that some people claim it is. I understand the perspective, even if I don't agree with it. But what I am utterly shocked with is that this film made well over a billion dollars. And there's nothing entertaining about it. It is so bleak. I can't imagine if this, for example, was just a crime movie if this was just taxi driver which it desperately wants to be in modern day just remove the comic book element to it this movie would make a billion dollars this movie wouldn't make 25 million dollars it's it's astounding to me that this thing worked and but it worked like gangbusters once again DC I don't understand their plan I don't know if they have a plan they're just letting people do hey you get to make any comic book story you want we don't care and here we go again Matt Reeves making this extremely dark and grim film. And I mean, I would not be surprised at all. I predict this movie will make $900 million worldwide, maybe more, maybe a billion. And it is really dark. It is really grim. Like I would not let my kids watch this until they were teenagers. As dark as the Marvel films get, there is some basic humanity to it, some kind of flashes of humor and friendship that make those films work. And by the way, Aquaman, In the DC canon does work this way as well. But you look at some movies like Joker and The Batman and like, wow, this is grim, grim stuff. (laughs) And it's making a billion dollars. Like, it's amazing. It's amazing that people will watch these comic book movies, no matter how grim they get. But it's working. DC has these properties and they've definitely had some very big misses. But overall, this non-strategy they have is working. And that's where we leave the dc universe for now what's coming in the future certainly another batman movie will zack snyder ever get to make that justice league sequel i don't think so i think that DC's probably pretty happy and warner brothers pretty happy exploring some of these less costly experiments i mean the joker for example didn't cost much at all 60 million dollars i think and made over a billion but we will see another aquaman movie just this year shazam is on the way there's another wonder woman movie coming also but what will happen to their signature characters can they bring back another superman movie will cavill come back for another superman movie or will they just reboot superman like i mean it's worked for these other characters why not just start over with somebody else same thing with affleck i think by abandoning justice league you get to kind of refresh the franchise and on a side note look at peacemaker suicide squad movie the sequel that came out this summer Not a huge hit, kind of a a failure when you consider the box office for that film. Even when you factor in the pandemic, it did not hurt. Just to call out one thing, Dune or Godzilla vs. Kong. Both were significantly bigger with theoretically a much smaller fan base. But they got their Peacemaker HBO Max series, which was a huge success and people loved it. So there's definitely going to be more of that. So this non-plan for DC continues to work oh and of course previewed in this very movie in the batman itself the flash is also getting his standalone film so it is very strange you know we are getting wonder woman sequels we're getting a flash standalone movie we're getting aquaman and meanwhile we're in current times with a completely different batman and superman their most iconic character is missing in action so what a weird conundrum for dc to be in but from a financial standpoint People are hanging in there, and the films are doing well. So that's the end of the episode. I hope you did enjoy it. As usual, make sure you subscribe so you know when we have new episodes. This week, expect us to be covering yet another episode of Severance. There's a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the most recent episode of Severance, and I'm very curious to see the next episode to see how things turn out for one of our favorite characters on that show. So I hope you are tuning in for that. And stay tuned. Later, this month we will have a preview episode catching up on all the marvel contact all the shows with another contributor not sona she's not a comic book fan so we have another contributor to talk about comic book movies with me and of course at the end of the month the very end of the month we will start recapping moon Knight on disney plus thanks for tuning in and i'll talk to you soon